Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see everybody here this morning. And uh, I've already had the opportunity to uh, meet a couple first-time guests, which is exciting. Uh, this morning is a little bit different because both of our pastors are out this morning. So Pastor Hafler, about um, five or six weeks ago, asked me if I would uh, step in and fill in and preach this morning. Um, so I'm excited to be able to do that. And just one point of clarification, there was a little bit of a typo in the uh, service outline for this morning and the focus of the text this morning. Um, it was the right passage, but the focus of the text starts in verse 16, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 3, 4. So thanks, for, thanks Sam, for reading just a little bit extra. We all benefit from that. Um, but first, before preaching, Pastor Hafler had asked me um, as uh, one of the nominated potential elders of the church, he had asked me to first uh, give my testimony. Um, so you guys kind of got a sense about me. And as I get into that, um, I want to take a few minutes just to do that. But first, I want to introduce my family. And I promised my wife I would not make her stand up this morning. Um, so, but my wife is sitting back here towards the back, Laurel Epp. And I have two wonderful young children, Ryan and Isaac, who are both downstairs. And, and Ryan will be eight um, this week, actually. And Isaac will be five next month. And the Lord has blessed us greatly with them. And my mom, many of you know my mom, Cheryl Epp. She's a member of the church here as well. And so that's my family. Um, I remember at the age of about five or six, I remember sitting in the back seat of our car. And at that time, I was sitting back there with, with my sister. And we were having a conversation, mostly her talking. And she was telling me about Christ. And I was very young, and that was a long time ago. I'm not going to tell you how long ago, because that would kind of date me. Uh, but it was a long time ago, and though I don't remember a lot about the conversation specifically that we had, I remember responding to Christ, and I remember accepting Jesus and placing my faith in Him at that time. And although I don't remember a lot about, specifically about the conversations, I do believe that Christ saved me through His grace at that time, through the faith of a child. And I am fully convinced that salvation is by God's grace alone through faith in the object of our salvation, in the object of our faith in Christ. Because Christ is the one who paid the penalty for my sin. Christ is the one who went to the cross and paid my debt. And as he died and he uttered the words, it is finished, that was a completed work. He purchased me with his life, with his blood. He shed his blood to pay for my sin. And God raised him from the dead. And my life is in him because of his life. And I have the hope of eternal glory because of who Christ is and what he has done for me. And it is completely on the basis of God's grace through faith. I've experienced in my life, I, I've experienced many times God's sustaining work and sustaining my faith through different trials. I've experienced God's chastening in my life in seasons of sin. And I, have, and I have had seasons of sin in my life. My life did not align with the gospel. But I've seen the way that God has come in and He has intervened and He has chastened me and led me back to Him. And that's a comforting thing, right? Because we know that God chastens those that He loves. And in fact, if we're not chastened by the Lord, we're illegitimate children. So it's very comforting to me to see how the Lord has led me, how He has grown me, how He has chastened me in my sin. And I'm so thankful for the work that He has done. A couple of my favorite verses are probably some very familiar verses to us all. 
Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I am incredibly grateful. And the reason those verses are some of my favorites is because I am thankful for God's grace. And I am thankful that God has not left my salvation up to my own work. Because I've failed and I've blown it. God's grace is greater than our sin. And I stand here this morning as a man who has experienced the forgiveness of my sins. And I've placed my faith in Jesus and the work that he has done. So we're going to move on to the, uh, to the text here, or the sermon this morning. And, and uh, I'm just going to tell you that when, when I talked to Steve a couple weeks ago, Pastor Hafler, he said, you got 40 minutes, Jared, and don't go over that. Well, I got about nine pages of notes, at, and honestly, it's about 50 minutes worth of notes as I've gone through this in my office. And so we'll see how long that takes this morning, but we'll move through this. And uh, we'll get through this text this morning. So if you haven't already, if you'll open up your your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And the text again for this morning is going to be verses 16 through 3, 4. And as we look at this, I just want to think about the fact that we live in a very ecumenical society, don't we? And it's not that different than it was back in Paul's day. And what I mean by that is not that there's many different religions out there. And that, that is certainly true, and there are. But even under the umbrella of evangelicalism, there's many proclaiming Bible-believing churches that preach many different doctrines, don't they? isn't there? In fact, there's, there's a lot of churches out there that preach Christ, but then they attach some kind of work or something to the work of Christ that they teach is necessary for salvation. I remember a number of years ago visiting a family member's church, and it's a quote-unquote evangelical church. And they claim to preach Christ. They claim to be Bible-believing. One of the errors that they have is that they attach the work of baptism to the, to the gospel. In fact, they actually preach and believe that baptism is the means of salvation. And that's an error. And that's an error. And as, as we sat in the church and we looked in the hymnal, there was actually a page in there that gave instructions for baptism in emergency uh, circumstances. So in other words, if you had a family member that was about to die in the home that had not been baptized, there was instructions in the hymnal about how to use your bathtub to baptize that family member so that they can go to heaven. Now, I don't want to diminish the importance of baptism because here we believe in the importance of baptism, right? It is one of the two ordinances given to the church. But we don't believe that it's the means of salvation. Okay, that is by grace through faith in Christ and what he has done for us. And baptism is an act that we do following salvation. It's a picture of what's already happened for us in our hearts. It's not the means of salvation, though it is closely linked to salvation. We don't attach it to the gospel because when we attach any work to the gospel, we lose the gospel. And as we look at this texture this morning... What we don't want to do is just develop some doctrinal truths. But the important thing for us to see and understand here is why the Spirit of Christ led Paul to write this section. To see what the main thing is and what Paul is writing about. What the main truth that Christ wants us to understand. And here is the main thing. Here is Paul's purpose for writing this passage this morning that we're going to look at this morning. 
And the main thing is this. He writes this to point out the insufficiency of man, the law and human religion, and to build up the sufficiency of Christ alone. Paul writes the book of Colossians to remind them of what is true and to warn them about the false teaching and the false influence that is coming into the church. As Paul writes this book, he he develops the main purpose and the main theme of this book very clearly. And the main theme of the book of Colossians, I would put it like this. That Christ is supreme. He is preeminent. He is sufficient for our salvation. And our participation with Him in His life is solely on the basis of who He is and what He has done for us. Nothing else. That is the main point of the book of Colossians. Paul makes it very clear that in contrast to the sufficiency of Christ, man is completely deficient. Completely deficient, lacking in the ability to save himself. And in chapter 2, verse 23, he says, It's of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. And in fact, Paul prays in, verse, or in chapter 1, verse 9, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his, speaking of God's will, They would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because Paul understands that our greatest need, it is met in Christ. Our greatest need is not met in our own efforts. Our greatest need is not met in a religious system. Although sometimes we like that if we're honest, don't we? Because it's very easy in religious systems to be told how to live. It's very easy to follow a system, a set of rules. And sometimes we like it because of our own pride, right? We like to look good. We like to look religious. And sometimes that's even a danger for ourselves. But our sufficiency is not in ourselves, but it is in Christ alone. In chapter uh, 1, verse 13, he says, He, speaking of the Father, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, Christ has reconciled us. Christ has done the work and He has reconciled us. And there in verse 20, we see that the Father, based on the work that Christ did, that the Father has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. The Father's done this work. He's done the work of transferring based on the work of Christ, which was complete. Which was complete. And that left no room for our own working. It's completely a work of Christ. I want to take just a little bit of time here to kind of take an overview of the book of Colossians at this point and kind of walk through what Paul has developed up to this point. Of course, he opens this letter with a typical Pauline greeting. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother, Timothy was probably his scribe. And Paul continues then with this thanksgiving and he's giving thanks to the Father for this church. And he gives thanks for specific things. That their faith, he, he gives thanks for their faith in Christ he gives thanks for the love that they have for one another. And he qualifies this love by saying, because of the hope that you have laid up for you in heaven. And he gives thanks that the gospel is bearing fruit among them. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. See, here Paul is already turning their attention back to how they first learned Christ. You learn Christ from a faithful minister, and don't forget that. Paul moves on to establish the preeminence of Christ in, in chapter in verses 15 through 20. 
And he points this out about Christ. He says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the creator of all things, the one through whom all things hold together. He is the head of the church. So whose teachings do we follow? Follow Christ. Our head. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the first one to die and never to be to die and to be raised and to never die again. Right in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's deity. And through him, all things are reconciled to him. And as I went as I went through this, I I really like the way um, Richard Estill put this in one of our uh, growth group training classes. He says, you know, this is like Jesus's resume. This is just a snapshot. This is who he is. And this is, these are his qualifications. Paul moves on from there and he addresses his ministry. And he says that he suffers and toils with Christ's strength to make the word of God more fully known. In effect, in this section, he's going to address Christ as God's mystery three times. And why does he do that? Why is Christ a mystery? Because for, for years past... Israel lived among the law, with the, living under the law, and they lived with the prophets, right? And the law and the prophets were pointing at something. What they're pointing to was Christ. Israel knew they were waiting for a Messiah. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, it says this, concerning, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. These prophets have been predicting Christ. And now he's here. He's the predicted one. He's not a new teaching. So the nation of Israel has lived, lived under this law up to this point, and now Christ is here. And he's not a new teaching, but he's been predicted for many, many years. He is God's mystery And he is now revealed to us. And Paul moves on with an encouragement to those of us that are alive in Christ, that we should walk in him. And in verse eight, he says, not being taken captive by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. See, Paul here is beginning to develop a contrast between the elements of the world and between Christ or between the insufficient with the sufficient And this contrast is really going to get at the heart of the false teaching that is coming into this church. And this brings us to our passage this morning in in, uh, chapter two, starting at verse 16. And I think it's helpful for us just just to just to see a little snapshot of of the city of Colossae. City of Colossae was a relatively large city. It was primarily made of made up of um, pagan Gentiles. They worshiped many different gods. But the city also had a relatively large population of Jews, and it created an interesting dynamic because as these Jews mingled with these uh, Gentile, these Gentiles, what we see probably most likely happening is what we call some syncretism or they're mixing some of their religious beliefs. And so, again, as we already saw in verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. It's a lie. It's deceiving. The false teaching that is coming in is, is it's a lie. According to the human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. See, the wisdom of what they're pushing, the false teachers are pushing, is based on the elemental tr- wisdom of the world. 
which is a lie, and it's not based on Christ, who is the head of the church, the preeminent one. The warning here is not to be given to these lesser things. And in verse 16, Paul begins to clarify what this false teaching is that is facing the church. What is this influence that's coming in? And he lays the false teaching out in two lists. Look at verse 16. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. And those things sound very Jewish, don't they? Those things sound very much like the Jews coming in and influencing this lawful living. You must hold to the law. And the problem is here is the insistence on the keeping of these things for righteous gain or for salvation. That seems to be the influence. And then in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. And we'll stop right there. But as we look at those things, those, those feel very pagan, don't they? They don't even feel like the things that are of God's law, but they seem foreign. Douglas Moo, in his commentary to the Colossians, he says this. The central point of verse 8, an exhortation to not follow the false teaching, is also the heart of verse 16, verses 16 to 23, expressed twice. Do not let anyone judge you. Do not let anyone disqualify you. In verse 8, Paul justifies his warning in two ways, positively by characterizing the teaching as human in orientation and based on the elements of the world. And negatively, by asserting that the teaching is not based on Christ. And so that's the basic error of the false teachers. Is their teaching is based on the elements of the world or the elemental spirits of the world. And it's not based on Christ. In fact, the problem is that these false teachers, they fail to see the sufficiency of Christ. And what they tried to accomplish through their, through their religion and through their works and their observances, they fail to see that those things can only be accomplished and found in Christ. Even as, as for the influence of keeping the law, we can only be a law keeper in Christ. Okay? Verse 16 says, Let no one pass judgment on you. And what he means here is not that we take this defensive disposition and step back and say, hey, you're not allowed to judge. You can't judge me for what I do. That's not what he's talking about here. But he's actually saying when, when they come in and they judge you for what you're not doing and they try to push their false influence upon you, don't accept that. Don't buy into it. Remember his exhortation earlier to remember how you came to Christ, how it was taught to you. Remember that and don't buy into the judgment the false judgment of these teachers coming in and influencing observances. William Hendrickson in his commentary says this about the Jewish influence. He says the Jewish aspect of the Colossian heresy stands out clearly here. Nevertheless, it is also evident that the error went beyond that mixture of Jewish religion and Christianity, which is called Judaism. For the Colossian heirist passed judgment not only with respect to the eating, but also with respect to drinking. Although with respect to the latter subject, the Old Testament contains rather few prohibitions, though a lack of moderation is strongly condemned. See, the interesting thing here, and, and how I mentioned that there was probably this syncretism that was going on, or this mixing of the, the beliefs of the Jewish people with the pagan Gentiles, 
As you look back to the law, the law certainly contained dietary restrictions, right, with unclean and clean foods. But what it didn't really address was drink. And so you see how they've actually added this. As they're pushing this influence, it's probably not even a purely Jewish influence. And they've probably added to the law that they follow. In fact, the Old Testament only addresses drink a few times. In Leviticus 10.9, gives instruction to drink no wine or strong drink when you go into the tent of meeting. It was at a specific time for a specific purpose. In number six, for the one who takes a vow as a Nazarite, is commanded to separate himself from wine or strong drink. And then in Judges 13, the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife and tells her that she's going to conceive and bear a son, and therefore he commands her to be careful to drink no wine or strong drink. And, and, and the point here, the point, is to, the point to see here is that, that even the Jews are probably taking some of the pagan Rituals might even be some of the aspects of their asceticism. They're probably adding it to the law that they're influencing. But here's the problem. In trying to impose these regulations on people, these false teachers are teaching that a strict adherence to these things is necessary for their salvation, or at least for their righteous advancement. And again, not seeing the sufficiency of Christ. In verse 17... Paul goes on to talk about how these things are a shadow of things to come. And what is coming? It's Christ. And it's interesting here because Paul's talking about false teaching, but he's actually not condemning the things in verse 16. He's actually not, he's not specifically condemning the, the observances of these things, right? Because for the most, most part, these are the things of the law. Now, that's a little bit confusing, right? Because he's talking about false teaching, which is bad. And I want to make it clear that Paul is not anti-law. We are not either. And we understand that the law is good. In 1 Timothy 1.8, we see this. Paul says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Well, how do we use it lawfully? Romans 7.7 7 tells us, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known my sin. See, Paul saw the law in a right context. And he allowed it to be his tutor. He allowed it to be his instructor to show him his sin. And he understood he was a sinner from that. He understood that he did not keep the law. He saw in very clear ways the way that he had broken it and that he was a sinner. And we should see the law in the same context to understand that we're not law keepers either. And we don't have the capacity to be. Not in and of ourselves. Paul goes on in Romans 8, 8. Verses 3 through 4, and he says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See, Christ was the only law keeper. And it is only by having our life found in him can we be law keepers. It's based upon Christ. It's based upon His qualifications and what He's done and who He is. We are not law keepers. But only in Christ can the righteous requirements of the law be fulfilled in us. So we see that the the law holds no power to save. Holds no power to save. In fact, it's been weakened by our sin. But God has sent Jesus who fulfilled the law that the righteous requirements of the law might be 
fulfilled in us. Once again, the sufficiency is Christ alone. And I know I'm repeating that sufficiency over, but I want us to get that point that Christ is sufficient. So what is Paul condemning here? If he's not condemning these specific observances of these things, what is he condemning? Well, he's condemning, he's condemning the, the wrong judgment of these things or the requirement of these observ- observances. Okay, it's okay to observe these things, but when you say you must do this for salvation, that's where the error comes in. In fact, even within the body of Christ, we don't judge one another on these things. In Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 1, it says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not as to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person, believe, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see, these things aren't bad if we do them out of of a conviction and not for righteous gain. And we don't even judge one another in terms of these. But when the influence is to keep them for our salvation, it's found to be an error. Verse 17, again, Paul calls these things a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, the nation of Israel, they lived in the shadow. They lived under the law. And they lived with the prophets who were pointing to something, pointing to Christ. And Christ is the object. And that's what it means that the substance belongs to Christ because the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Christ and Christ alone. And He is the one that's casting the shadow that Israel is living in. And it's interesting because the shadow's not the real thing, right? If you were to stand there... And from from your backside, you see a shadow come up and pass by you. It's an indication of the imminent or at least the soon arrival of the object of that shadow, right? The one casting the shadow. The shadow is not the person, but the shadow is being cast by the person. And so when that person gets to you, you're standing in the presence of that person and the shadow's passed. So it is with Christ. He's come. He is the object casting the shadow. These false teachers are still living in the shadow. They're trying to cling to the shadow. But the reality is that Christ has come and the shadow has moved on. I love how William Hendrickson puts this. He says, why regard as indispensable ordinances as to eating when the one foreshadowed by Israel's manna is offering itself as the bread of life? How can the observance of the Passover be considered a means unto spiritual perfection when our Passover has been sacrificed, even Christ? What justification could there be for imposing upon the converts from the Gentile world the observance of the Jewish Sabbath when the bringer of eternal rest is urging everyone to come unto him? And I think that's beautiful. So here's the reality. The the object of the shadow has come. The shadow has gone. And it gives evidence that, you know what, there's no more requirement to keep the righteous requirements of the law because the real thing is here and it's fulfilled in Christ. 
Our righteousness is not wrapped up in keeping the things of the shadow. And that's the main error of these false teachers. Is they, that, again, they fail to see the sufficiency of Christ. The substance belongs to Him. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And He's here. He is our bread of life. He is our rest. He is superior to the law and He is sufficient for our salvation. But they don't recognize that. They don't realize that the shadow has passed. And that the real thing has come. Moving on to verse 18, it says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. And here's the problem. They're puffed up without reason by sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. The problem is it's based on, their teaching is based on human reason. It's senseless. It's actually arrogant. The idea of being disqualified here really carries the, carries the idea of, of being condemned or judged. And just like in verse 16, it's saying, don't let them judge you. Don't, don't buy into the influence. Don't accept their judgments upon you. Don't buy into the false teaching that they're, that they're trying to push. It's human teaching. And in chapter 1, verse 18, it says, He, Christ, He is the head of the body, the church. And in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Friend, if you want to know where wisdom and knowledge comes from, it's in Christ. It's in Christ alone. It's not in our human wisdom. So where do we turn for right teaching? Where do we turn to to find the truth? We turn to Christ. And we hold to what He teaches in His Word. Because that's where we find truth. As for the asceticism that's, that's being talked about here, the, the idea is a practice of a false humility. Oftentimes it's, it carries the idea of self-abasement or, or the harming of one's body. Um, oftentimes. Or at least the denial of, of certain pleasures for the purposes of spiritual achievement or advancement. And then the worship of the angels. We don't, we're not given any real clarification about what this practice actually was. One school of thought about what this might have been is that in the view of these ascetics, they view themselves so insignificant that they had no direct line to God. And so they actually may have developed a practice of worshiping the angels as kind of a, kind of a medium between themselves and God. But here's the problem. No matter, no matter what this practice really was, it is strictly wicked and it is strictly condemned. In fact, in Revelation 19.10, we see that John has this encounter with an angel, right? And what does John do? He falls down at the angel's feet to worship him. And how does the angel respond? The angel says this, you must not do that! Exclamation point. Very pointed, very strong. I'm a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. So whatever this practice of worshiping angels is, it's wicked. We worship God and God alone. And he goes on talking about the going on in detail about visions. He says this is without reason. They're following their own vain imaginations and they're not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. 
Who is the head? It's Christ that nourishes and causes the body to grow. Not our own thinking. In verse 20, Paul moves on and he develops this. uh, He actually makes this contrast between the substance that belongs to Christ and the elemental spirits of the world. Look at verse 20. It says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, then he's going to ask this question. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. In other words, if you have found your life or your sufficiency in Christ, why are you then going to go back and hold to these elementary things? Why are you going to hold on to the things of the shadow? The things that disappear as they're used. Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 17, he says this. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes through the stomach and is expelled? Remember referring to the things that perishes there used. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with one, eat with unwashed hands, defiles no one. See, the defiling is from what comes out of us. It's the core of who we are. It's not what we're putting into our body. It's not the food that we're eating. And in fact, in fact, in fact as we look at verse 23, it appears that one of the things that the false teachers are trying to accomplish is to stop the indulgence of the, of the flesh. But in verse 23, it's going to clarify that none of this does that. Verse 23, these indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What he's saying here is that these things are worthless, worthless to, to accomplish their intended purpose. And the reality of this teaching is that it is based on appearance and reputation. And it's very possible and probably even more likely that adhering to these false teaching, giving ourselves to these observances and buying into what the false teachers are pushing actually most likely increases the indulgence of the flesh. It boosts our pride. Right? Because these things, they give the appearance of wisdom. They give the appearance of righteousness, right? But what does Paul say? It's promoting self-made religion. It looks very impressive when the Buddhist monk lives an ascetic lifestyle, right? And denies himself of many of the pleasures of the world. And we can look at that and we can say, man, look how, look how righteous that one is. He's so devoted to his cause. He's so devoted to his beliefs. He's a righteous man. Wow. Or when the hypocrites described in Matthew 6, they stand and pray publicly. For what? To be seen by men. And it looks impressive. And we look at that one and we say, man, look how how righteous and spiritual that one is. I wish I was like him. It looks impressive. But what does the Bible say? That one has his reward in full because he's seeking the praise of men. 
It's worthless, and it's actually doing nothing to stop the indulgence of the flesh, but it's actually pushing in fleshly indulgence and building his own pride. That's something we have to be careful of. So again, the problem with these false teachers is they're missing the sufficiency of Christ. They're pushing a worldly system that does not accomplish its intended purpose. So what then for us? Where do we turn for truth? Where do we find wisdom? We look to Christ. He's the head of the church. He is the one that we follow. We look to His Word. And we're very, very careful about the things that we cling to because the danger for us is that we, we can look at these seemingly righteous things of people and the things that give the appearance of wisdom and we can say, man, we need to be more like that. And the danger is that, yeah, we, we believe in Christ. He paid the penalty for our sin, right? But man, if we want to, if we want to be righteous, man, we, we need to start dressing this way. We need to start avoiding these things. We need to start doing these things. And, and the problem and the danger is that our identity ends up being found in these things. It might very well be based on human wisdom. But we hold to what's true. We hold to Christ and we turn to the head of the church, the preeminent one. And we follow his teachings. We must hold fast to the one who purchased our souls. He's made peace for us by the blood of his cross. We hold fast to him. So how do we hold fast to Christ? How do we hold true or fast? How do we hold true to, to right orthodoxy or right teaching? How do we stay true to the teachings of Christ? Well, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You want to know what right teaching is? You want to make sure you stay in line with Christ and what is true? Look to what he teaches. He's our head. He's our master. We follow his teaching and we don't follow the element elemental teachings of this world. Christ, this, this setting your mind on the things that are in heaven where Christ is, this, this, is setting your, this is setting our mind on the teachings of Christ that we've been talking about. That is, what, that is what we are to do. And this stands in sharp contrast to the wisdom of the world, right? Because some of that wisdom is just going on in detail about these vain visions that mean nothing. An interpretation about nothing. It's unwise. It's foolish. So in Christ we will find truth and guidance for our lives. As Paul says in chapter 1 verse 10. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
So in conclusion here this morning, I just want to remind us of that main thing. The main thing that the Spirit of God is wanting us to understand this morning through this text is that we are insufficient people. We are insufficient to save ourselves, to gain any type of a righteous standing. But here's the big thing. Here's the big idea. Christ is sufficient. Based on who He is and what He has done, that Christ is sufficient. We are a separated. We are people separated by our sin from a holy and righteous God. And we have no capacity within ourselves to right that relationship, but we trust in the work of Christ. The reconciling work of Christ on the cross. That through faith, He reconciles us to God and He writes that relationship. See, the only way to be right with God is to be right with Christ. He is God. We must have a right relationship with God through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is God's grace. And another very familiar verse to most of us, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So how do we get that eternal life? Believe. It's God's grace. Believe that Jesus accomplished it. He's sufficient. He accomplished that work for you. Trust in Him. It is God's gift that comes, that is to be received through faith. And faith alone in the object of our salvation, Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Christ, you have not experienced the forgiveness of your sins, please talk to someone. Please talk to me. There's many other here that would be happy to sit down with you and show you from God's word how you may have a right relationship with God in Christ.